0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest installment, of for what it's worth, I'm able to crank these things out pretty fast now, and now that I'm at home all the time, it, uh, I have more time to do this, even though I have been busier in the last three weeks than in the last 10 years, but I am sitting here thinking about the Cherokee and the Apache and the Cheyenne and the Sioux and the Navajo and the Paiutes and the Iroquois. And the Osage, the Shoshone, the Pawnee, the Blackfoot, the Utes, the Nez Perce, the Crow, the Miwok, the Poncha, the Ho-Chunk, the Omaha. I'm thinking about all of these Native American people. They are definitely in my mind. The Pimas, the Hoopa, the Tulalip, and the Pasquayaki tribe. All of them. I'm curious what's happening on the reservations at this moment. Uh, I'm reading a book right now called The Book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. It is incredibly dense, but it's from 30 Hopi elders talking about their worldview and how the tribe came to be, sort of their religion, their life view, etc. It's incredibly complex, but also pretty inspiring, I have to admit. But we have a slash. We begin this bulletin with a special report, and that is that... Apple has not called after my last episode. They have not, let me repeat, Apple has not called, nor have they delivered a free uh, Mac mini or a free iPad Pro with the funky kickstand. Neither one. And I tried tcook at apple.com and tcook at gmail.com just to throw them a loop, see what happened. Nothing, no response. But The virus has allowed us to make breakthroughs in all kinds of ways, and I think I just realized something, and you guys know I've been heading in this direction for a long time. I think maybe I'm not an Apple person anymore. Apple has been suspiciously quiet during this entire episode of the virus, but one Bill Gates has not. In fact, Bill Gates was way ahead of the curve, people, and most of you I'm guessing by now have seen that TED Talk. He did about five years ago saying that we are completely and utterly unprepared for a pandemic. I've seen him on YouTube. I've seen him on national news. I've seen him on all kinds of things, sharing his knowledge of viruses, pandemics, technology, big data. I have a sinking suspicion that I might be in a transition right now from Apple to Microsoft. Now, I don't know what it's called. I've only seen it but it's that giant Microsoft thing. It's a screen on a stand that moves up and down, and it's beautiful. And it has that suction cup hockey puck thing that attaches to the screen that you can do all kinds of things with. That's the kind of innovation. When I see it, it makes me want to be creative. And that's a weird thing. When I look at Apple products now, they don't make me want to do anything. When I look at the, what is it called, the Surface Book thing, maybe not the Surface Book. What's the little one that's a like a laptop, but it's like a tablet, and it has a pen, but it has a keyboard? Whatever that thing is, Microsoft, maybe it's a Surface Pro. Someone gave me one of those. I think I've mentioned this before. I, I got one of those for free at an event a few years ago. It was like a Microsoft Surface Pro 4, I want to say. And I walked into this event and there was a huge line of people, thousands of people in a line. And I walked in the security guy goes, Hey, uh, you know, get in line, get your free surface pro whatever. I go, uh, I don't think I'm supposed to be in that line. I don't think I'm supposed to get one of those. And the guy goes, yeah, they're giving them to everybody. So I literally get in this line. It takes about seven and a half days. I'm down about 40 pounds by the time I get to the front. And, uh, they give me one of these things. I have to say, Had I been versed in the Microsoft or the Windows system, I would still have it because it was so far beyond any Apple product I've ever had in terms of capability. It had full desktop applications, full programs. It had ports. It had a pen. It had a keyboard. It was fast. It was processor. I just didn't know Windows. I just felt like I was staring at some alien landscape. And so I gave it to a friend. Who then I'm sure turned around and sold it and made some money because that's what friends do. You got to keep an eye on them, even the ones that you think are on the up and up. You never know. But what do I blame them? No, not at all. So I'm sure there's like a Surface Pro 35 by now, and uh, I'm sure that's great. And actually, I'm serious about this. I am going to really investigate what Microsoft has to offer, and I think maybe, just maybe, that this is a a good lesson for all of us because I keep hearing a sentiment from around the world that I hear over and over and over again from people who I'm reaching out to, whether it's Japan, Australia, Europe, Canada, the U.S., Latin America. Everyone is hopeful that humans are going to learn from what we're going through right now. But every time someone says that, including myself, it's always followed by, but I don't have any hope that we will do this. That within two weeks of the conclusion of the virus, however, whatever that may be, People will be back to their cell phones. They'll be back to capitalism. They'll be back to doing all the things that we were doing before. Talking about how bad it is to to destroy environments and eliminate species and all this, and we're just going to go right back to it. If this doesn't, if the virus doesn't reset us, I don't know what will. And like I said, I'm a bit of a fatalist. I've been saying this from day one that humans are destined to destroy themselves. I just see that in around us every single day. And I, nothing has changed my opinion about that. Uh, maybe we can temporarily shift the playing field, uh re-deal a hand or whatever, but I'm not, uh, I'm not so sure. Okay, so we've got a big show to get to this week, uh, but I need to say something first. So my wife and I have been in isolation now for several weeks, and we are planning on being in isolation for as long as it takes. And this is something, I need to explain my point of view on this. I can't tell you what to do. That's not my job. It's not my responsibility. But I feel that being in isolation is my responsibility to our society. This is my responsibility as a human being to do whatever is required to end the scenario. I am doing my part. We are doing our part. For me, this is nothing. I love being in isolation. For my wife, it is a big deal. She is a social animal, and it is painful for her because she is stuck with me. And for any of you who know me, who've spent any time around me, you know what she's having to go through. But I'm not going to parties. I'm not going to dinners. I'm not traveling. I'm not hiking on popular hiking trails or gathering at trailheads. Uh, I'm not, again, having people over for dinner. I'm not visiting. I'm not traveling. I'm not in my van driving all over New Mexico. I could be, but it is irresponsible and selfish for me to do this. And no, I'm not hanging out with you, whether you live here or anywhere else. Um, I think it is our responsibility to do this now. We know beyond uh, with absolute certainty how this virus is being transmitted. And it's being transmitted now by people who are either breaking the rules or lazy, selfish, entitled, et cetera, who feel like they can skirt this. And again, it's two weeks of incubation, and people are like, oh, I feel fine, and then suddenly they get sick, and they've been out at a dinner party because that's a ritual that they've been doing for the, you know, their, the last five years. It, that really bothers me. It bothers me, but I can't do anything about it. What I can do is control my situation, and that's what I'm doing. Okay, so we're going to move on. The hero of the week is a photographer. And I can almost bet you you've never heard of her. And she is mind-blowingly good. And I'm looking her up right now because I should have done this earlier. And you can hear that feedback from my phone. It's unbelievable. Okay. She actually has a Wikipedia page, which tells you a little that she's probably a little more than a photographer. And I agree. But it's in Italian. What the? Okay. Her name is Georgia Fiorio. And it's G-I-O-R-G-I-A-F-I-O-R-I-O. Georgia Fiorio is an anomaly. Uh, I'm not really sure how else to describe her. I was probably 20 years into my career before I had ever even heard of her. And Georgia, the only reason I heard of Georgia Fiorio was two reasons. One, I knew the director of an agency called Contact Press Images, a guy named Robert Pledge. And... Bob Pledge, who's like the international man of mystery, he's an amazing dude. He mentioned her name, and I thought, I don't, I don't even know who you're talking about. Then, in the mid-90s, I opened up a Life magazine and saw a story. I was confronted by a story called Through the Gates of Hell, which was about men who had volunteered for the French Foreign Legion training in the jungles of South America. And it was shot with a Hasselblad in black-and-white film. And shooting reportage, fast-moving reportage with a Hasselblad, was alien to me at that time. And I thought, wait a minute, this is like a studio camera, portrait camera. How on earth is anyone using this? And the lead image from that project, which you can look up online, by the way, the lead image, I tore, I tore out the whole spread and kept it, and I still have it somewhere around here. It absolutely changed my photographic life because one, I saw a level of photographer that I, I had very, very rarely, if ever, encountered. The amount of work, the depth of work, the quality of work. And what it was, was she had... Done a project on men in general, and just one of the chapters was this foreign legion work. And I was so blown away by that. It was a 10 year project, so she worked on this for 10 years. Obviously, this is old style photography, documentary photography work. It's very, very, very rare that anyone ever works on anything of this length, at least in the photography space now. Everybody's too much in too much of a hurry. But look her up, Georgia Fiorio. She has a website, georgiafiorio.com. Um, it's scary how good this is. I mean, it's kind of scary for me to even look at it because it makes me feel like a complete hack. All right, that's, the, uh, that's our hero of the week. We're going to move on to some points. I've got some, some sort of trivial points this time. I've got some, and I've got one wildly important thing that I need your help on. But the first thing that I want to bring to your attention is that currently running is a special from Peter Crow. K-R-O-G-H, Peter, K-R-O-G-H. He did something called the Dam Book, Digital Asset Management Book. And for any of you who are thinking about archiving your work or looking for a system or wanting to know more, just know that the DAMN Book is the only technical book I've ever read in my entire adult life. It is remarkable what Peter knows about files, about archiving, storage, retrieval, etc. He's got a 50% off thing running right now. I would get this book if you if you don't know about it you've never used it I don't I'm not sponsored by Peter obviously he's a friend um, I love what he does and it's so far beyond anything I'd be able to comprehend or figure out on my own that it's it's fantastic. I've recommended this book and so you should check it out. okay we're going to move on. The first point I want to make is about sailing long distance sailing so I when I was a kid, I didn't grow up around the water. I grew up in Indiana, Wyoming, and Texas, right? Texas was lakes and rivers, and we'd skied and stuff like that. But I, I, wasn't, I wouldn't call myself a water person as a kid. I loved being in the water, but I just didn't grow up sailing or around the ocean. But a couple of times, once in middle school, once in I was early into high school, I was able to go to the British Virgin Islands, and I stayed with some friends of ours who had been going down there for like 45 years. And he was a sailor, really good. And so they would rent this house up on the top of Camano, and— the house came with this old four by four Bronco and a little whaler and and a sailboat. And I was able to, I didn't do a lot of sailing with them. We were mostly in the powerboat going back and forth between islands, little boats, which was kind of terrifying at times. But sailing was always something in the back of my head that I thought that's something I need to explore further. And then for whatever reason, I never did. And when I lived in California, I had a million opportunities and I never did. I was always doing something else. But Recently, I've been thinking a lot more about it, and I've re- through the years, I've read some amazing books by sailors about sailing and, you know, things that have happened at sea and everything. But I'm really considering when the virus res- resolves itself, if we're still around, I definitely want to do this. And the idea would be to potentially get a boat and have it somewhere on the Gulf of Mexico and then be able to go Caribbean, Latin America, Gulf, that kind of thing. And not live on the boat full-time, but I would be maybe half the year on the boat, depending on how it went. I have to learn to sail. Obviously, we're talking. I'm I'm at the crumb stage right now. I'm I'm just putting the flour into the bowl. I haven't. I have no recipe. I have no time. I don't have an oven. I don't have the rest of the ingredients, etc. So we're a long, long way away. But for those of you out there who sail, or how bad of an idea is this, or how good of an idea? It doesn't really matter ultimately what you tell me because if I want to do it, I'm going to try to do it anyway. And I don't really know why not. I do love the water. I love the ocean. And with rising sea levels, let's face it, there's going to be plenty of new places to sail. Maybe I'll just sail up to Atlanta. Now, I have a cousin who is an incredible guy. I have not seen him in years. He's had some rough patches. But as a kid, he was my hero. My cousin would come to our house wherever we were living, and I was blown away. There was no other adult around like him. The way he dressed, the way he looked, the way he spoke, his knowledge. He was like an encyclopedia of the world. He was also an incredible sailor. He built a kayak. With a sail mount, and he sailed down the Ohio River all the way to South America over a four or five year period, he and his girlfriend. It was unbelievable, this this story. And then he took that same, it was a collapsible kayak with a sail mount, and he sailed by himself up the Amazon River, made contact with some tribe, lost tribe or whatever, and uh, hung out there for a while. He also sailed it around the Bahamas, all the remote, nameless, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of small islands. He did that for a long time. He sailed through the Everglades on this thing. He's quite a remarkable dude. Oddly enough, I've never really spoken to him about sailing, which is crazy because he would be the guy. So tell me what you think. Is this good? Is it bad? Okay. Now, point number two is I need to defend YouTube. Okay. Now, as you all know, I'm a total star now on YouTube. I'm a darling. People are flocking to me. It's embarrassing. I can't go out in public anymore. It's just, uh, it's gross. But YouTube takes a beating, right? Because everyone talks about how no matter what the product is, people use soft core porn to sell the product. So let's say that you're selling a police scanner, a unit in Bearcat 125 AT, which is what I have in front of me. And you're like, man, I'm going to do a YouTube film about the unit in Bearcat 125AT and how amazingly easy it is to program. So you could have me in the desert with this, basically tuning into whatever, radar, air traffic control. Or you could have a 25-year-old in a thong on a yoga mat with the unit in Bearcat 125AT and guess what would get more hits than the other, right? So that's my point. And everyone's like, oh my God, everything on YouTube is about softcore porn. I don't believe that at all. Because I did a little research. I've got time. And I only found a couple of things that were being sold on YouTube with softcore porn. And I made a list. I made a short list. This is a modified short list because there really weren't that many. They are as follows. These are things being sold on YouTube through via softcore porn. Sailing, yoga, cooking, cameras, sport, entertainment, fitness, hiking, art, overlanding, van life, gardening, music, technology, mobile phones, travel, hospitality, fashion, art, commerce, industry, transportation, banking, energy, auto manufacturing, healthcare, and the environment. That's it. That's all that's being sold by softcore porn on YouTube. So it's not that bad. Okay, so everyone just relax. Okay, moving on. Point number three, which is about cooking. So the timing of this virus was, was odd in some ways. Obviously, it's terrible for everyone. My wife and I were in the process of moving when this hit, and we were in the process of moving outside of town. So we had uh, purposely we had a conversation about our food buying habits before we moved here. And because I like to, uh, to commute here on my bicycle, I'm now a lot further out of town. My, my house in Santa Fe is right downtown. I can walk everywhere, but it's rented and it's too small for us to live in uh, most of the time. So we rented this place outside of town and we said, look, we're going to stock up on food and buy a lot more food than we normally would. So we can avoid having to drive into town. And then when I go into town, I don't have to use my bike to shop. I can run errands on the bike, but when you've got frozen goods, and you're 30 minutes outside of town at 7,000 feet, and you're riding uphill to get to the house, it can be a challenge, and that's not something I want to do on a regular basis. So we were ready. We had lots of food already because we'd already started buying stuff to where we wouldn't have to go back into town all the time. And we're only 15 minutes outside of town, so it's not that big of a deal. It would probably take me 35 minutes to get in on my bicycle. And what it's made me do is rethink a couple of things. One, we were never big fans of going out all the time. I think that's an incredibly uh, wasteful way of spending basically money and also food resources and stuff like that. But the food that we make at home is better than the food that we can get at the restaurants. And my wife has been on a spree unlike anything I have ever seen. She's cooking like two hours a day, getting up. And first of all, I've been with her 25-plus years. I've never seen her do this, ever. So she likes to cook, but it's not some deeply inherent passion that every day she's like, oh, I'm going to try a new recipe. She doesn't even have recipes. She's making stuff that's, it's just the most unbelievable food I've had. And every time we sit down, we go, man, this is way better than such and such a restaurant. We've been there many times, and this is better food. But I think what it does is I think we all have to rethink our basic food strategy moving forward, Because getting in the car and driving around town to go get three things and then driving home, again, all of these systems are connected. When we're in our cars driving trips of less than five miles, we are losing, right? We're losing the battle with energy. We're losing the battle with the planet. We're losing the battle with pollution. And we've got to change that. The other thing we have to do is stop buying food from the other side of the world. Can you buy mango from Florida as opposed to mango from Thailand? You know, what are the differences in energy required to get stuff from one side of the world to the other? Farmer's markets, depending on where you live, are, a, are an absolute godsend. We have them here in Santa Fe twice a week, um, and they're incredibly popular. I think they had to actually yell at people not to go because people were still showing up to try to get food at the farmer's market. So I get that. But this whole thing has really made me Think rethink food strategy of what I'm going to do. And also I have not had meat in quite a while now. So that was kind of purposeful. Uh, Again, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody who eats meat. I grew up on a cattle ranch, at least in part. My mom was a vegetarian at the time, oddly enough. But anyway, people get sensitive about this, but I feel better. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely do, still doing my yoga every day. And for whatever reason, the lighter diet sits well with me. But remember, I took antibiotics for two years. So my, the, my internals are, you know, uh, that of a 150-year-old man. Okay, we're moving on, and we're getting to some of the more important parts. But um, we need to talk a little bit more, some of these things, before I get to the real the real thing. Okay, this is some rambling thing that I wrote a note to myself about. But I've also heard through the grapevine, this is point number five, about people during this pandemic, now that when you see people, how nice everyone is. Everyone's hello, and they're waving, and they're acting nice, and it's like a pandemic moment of kindness, if you will. But will it last? And I think what what the virus has done is it's, it's shown the limits of capitalism and how twisted we've become in our capitalistic society in America. And here's the interesting part. Republicans, if you say anything negative about capitalism, they will attack and attack and attack and attack as that's being anti-American, even while we're in the middle of this, right? And the market's crashing and people are losing this and there's so many people living on the margins and the fragile. It's the one percenters, the incredibly wealthy people who do not want anything to do with limiting capitalism. Uh, And some of these folks, it's it's pretty scary. Um, What we've done is basically weaponize capitalism. And I was speaking to a Trump supporter the other day, he's a friend of mine, and I mentioned the Koch brothers. And this person said, who? And I said, the Koch brothers. And he said, I I don't know who that is. And I said, how are you a Republican voter and a supporter of Donald Trump and you don't know about the Koch brothers? Doesn't know anything. Just clueless person and also incredibly greedy. Like he knows Trump is bad but his bank account before the virus, his bank account was okay. And so for him, with a straight face, he will say, yeah, I know he's a racist and a sexist and he lies and he cheats on his taxes and you know he's been terrible for us around the world and it goes on and on and on. And he goes, but man, my bank account, look at my bank account. And I think Americans who spend 80% of their time working to buy things that the advertisements are telling them to buy, I think my, my hope is that the virus... If it makes an impact, this is one of the areas that it should be. And I'll give you an example of how flawed, I think, how far off the, the, the path we've gone is this whole ridiculous idea of minimalism, right? So you have the, the woman, the Asian woman who wrote the book about minimal, minimal things. And I'm not saying that that's bad, and I'm not saying that the idea that there's this minimalism movement is necessarily the root of all evil. But here's the thing. It shouldn't be labeled minimalism. It should be labeled normal. We should not acquire the house full of house full of house full of car full of storage containers full of clothing after clothing after this after this. We are such consumers. The world has never seen a consuming class like America. And it, again, minimalism is weird because when you label something, oh, there's a minimalism movement, then it automatically puts it in this very strange separate entity, separate category that's like, oh, that's only for certain people. That's only for certain people who've gone against society, gone against the norm, gone against capitalism, and decided to live a minimal life. Instead of saying, you know, that actually is the normal way that people should be living. What we should have is maximalism. So everyone is labeled and wears the scarlet letter of like, yep, I'm a maximalism person. I have way too much stuff, right? I have 50 pairs of pants and 30 pairs of shoes. And I mean, look, what do athletes do when they get money? Regardless of sport, doesn't matter. Tennis, badminton, football, baseball, basketball, kung fu, whatever. They buy giant houses. They buy tons of cars. They blow all their money. Maximalism. So it's a weird thing, and I think what because we weaponized capitalism, it now has a defense layer around it. It's got razor wire, three strands of razor wire around it, and it's really hard to even criticize it because you'll be labeled, again, anti-American, you know, oh, this is a capitalistic society. What are you, a Marxist? What do you want, communism? Or like the clueless Trumpers who talk about socialism not knowing what the definition is, all that stuff. It's kind of kind of nutty. Okay, so we have two points, two more points that I want to get to. Uh, three more points. The third, this this next one, which is point six, I'm going to go very quickly, because it, I'm going to tie it into a later point. I think it's time to ban Instagram at specific locations. Now, when I say anything negative about Instagram, people go, they go crazy. I get a lot of name calling. I get people who call me names and say that I'm too stupid to understand the brilliance of the platform. That uh, blah, blah, blah. Now, I'm going to do a film over the next couple of weeks about why I deleted my accounts, and I've got about seven or eight reasons, and I think you'll be stunned with some of the data that I have and some of the conversations I've had with people that you just will not believe what they told me about how invasive this app has become in their life. But the destruction of the app is a well-documented destruction, as is the destruction of the parent company that owns the Instagram platform, and that would be Facebook, the, the CEO, the vice president, these are not good people. These are people that have a really hard time telling the truth. And we know the damage that they have caused in our society. So Instagram, we know there's been at least four years of data of how destructive this has been, not only to places like national parks or scenic areas where People are descending by the thousands, um, overwhelming the local population, overwhelming the, the actual land, overwhelming the resources, trashing and moving on, anything to get that checklist of images to get those likes. Now, Ed Abbey, for any of you who like to read and any of you who like the environmental movement, you've probably read a book called Desert Solitaire, which is a environmentalism Bible that came out back in the 70s, I believe, late 60s or early 70s. Ed Abbey was a, is a writer who was a park ranger in Arizona. And that book changed a lot of lives. It's almost like Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. And if you guys don't know that book, that's the book. And Rachel Carson is the one who basically started the environmental movement here. She lived in Maine and uh, was a pretty amazing writer and wrote something called Silent Spring. Even Rachel Carson was wrong about a few things. She thought the sea was endless and that there would never be any limits on what could, we could pull from the sea. They literally, she thought, and many other people at the time thought it was endless. But Abby's big idea, or one of the big ideas that came from De- Desert Solitaire was... Why do we allow people to drive into national parks? You should have to walk or ride a bicycle, and if you're not capable of walking or ride a bicycle, there could be like an electric tram only that would get you to a certain point, and that's it. But, you know, and people were just, of course, the oil and gas industry and the powers that be were just up in arms and outraged over how someone could suggest that because we're Americans and we can do whatever we want. But I think that's a wonderful idea. I mean, if you've ever been to Yosemite at peak time or any national park during, and at these days it's about any time, it's disgusting how many motorized vehicles are there, how many people, the crowds, the trash. It's not, I try to avoid most national parks unless it's completely in the off-season or horrible weather because I can't stand crowds. But Instagram has gone so far beyond the vehicle because it's much more potent and it's much more portable. So it's in your pocket, and these people, the Instagrammers, will stop at nothing to get what they need to get the likes. So, and I'm going re- to reemphasize this point in a minute when I come to my second to last point, which is about New Mexico, but I witnessed some things last year during fall colors here in Santa Fe that were absolutely astoundingly morbid in terms of uh, watching Instagrammers do what they do in public here and watching them destroy what was around them. So I think banning mobile phones at national monuments, national parks, et cetera, I don't know how you do this. It's probably impossible, but I think it's worth talking about, um, regardless of how many people call me names. All right, moving on. Second to last point, and this is something I really need your help on. I reached out to a friend earlier today. We Skyped for about 45 minutes and I picked his brain. He's a photographer, but he's way more than that. He's super intelligent, um, and he works with a variety of different uh, groups within the culture of the society where he lives. And he had some really good information for me. But here's the thing. So I saw a report the other day that shows that when this virus thing uh, concludes, that New Mexico is looking at about 12% unemployment. And that's, that's a that's a, a friendly prediction. It could be much, much worse. And so you could have 20% unemployment here. Now, New Mexico historically is incredibly poor. It's been a corrupt state. It's had drug problems. Drug, Drug trafficking issues it 's had environmental issues it 's had uh, you know worst place voted worst place to be a child, highest teen pregnancy there 's a lot and there 's a lot about New Mexico that is a complete unknown to the rest of the American population. The vast percentage of people I run into don 't know anything about this state at all the, they only know that Santa Fe is here, and if they 've been to Santa Fe, they think that Santa Fe is representative of the rest of the state, which it is not it 's a it 's complete anomaly. of all the Fortune 500 CEOs own property here. There's a lot of wealth here. And the rest of the state does not share that same thing. In addition, like many other places around the world, and again, for those of you living overseas, I really need your help here. And for those of you living in the States, I really need your help here because I just need feedback. Like a lot of other places in the world, we have a significant portion of the population that lives without hope. You know they've, been, they've grown up in less than optimal socioeconomic terms. They may live in high crime areas, drug areas, um, they may have family members who are suffering. They have not they don't have a great education system. And they kind of look at the future of New Mexico, changing new mexico new mexico getting better they just go i don't care because i can't make an impact it's not going to matter you know whatever i'm i've grew up in this my parents grew up in this i'm going to grow up in it i'm not going to change i don't know how you address those folks i really don't and that's not just in new mexico that's everywhere but my goal here is to get involved because i unlike california where i never felt like getting involved I really feel like getting involved here and trying to figure out how you help New Mexico. How do we make it better? So I made a list of, of industries, education, science, technology, extraction, art, tourism, transportation, environment, law enforcement, cultural affairs, and the Native American communities. And I look at these systems now, and I don't see hardly any connection between them at all. There's not even any dialogue. There's no conversation. How is the education market, industry, related to extraction? I don't know. How is cultural affairs related to the science industry? They are. I just don't know exactly. And who are the representations of these? What's happened here is what's happened everywhere else, is that everyone is in a silo. So if you work in tourism, you're in tourism. If you work in extraction, you're in extraction. If you work in art, you're in art. I've never heard a conversation in New Mexico that tied extraction in the art world, even though we're a couple hundred miles apart and the southeastern corner of New Mexico is called Little Texas and it sits on the edge of the Permian Basin and it's all about extraction, oil and gas. Why is there no dialogue? So there's a couple of things that are limits here. The kids leave because there's no jobs. We have poverty. We have apathy. We have a a subpar education system. We have lack of training. We have corruption. We have bad infrastructure. We have a lack of water, and our reputation is not great, which is a lot. So my question to you is, how do we fix this? How do we get people involved? Now, there are organizations here who are trying to do things, right? And I'm not knocking them because they're trying, And, and obviously this is a monumental task, right? This is happening all over the world and people are getting left behind. I think there's a couple of underlying things that we need to focus on. But the organizations that are doing here, doing it here, they only seem to be hitting a very specific set of the demographic which tends to to lean towards the wealthy and white side of things, you know. The people that will go to an art opening or the people that will go to a mixer or whatever. And again, you go there and you meet smart people and people that want to help, but it's only you look I look around and I say where's the rest of society? Like, where is the middle class people? Where are the lower class people? Where are the poor? Where are the people from the Native American community? Why are they not here? Why are are people not having conversations? And I look at things like social media, and social media and Instagram in particular is not a solution to me at all. And in addition, social media and things like, like Instagram are bringing the wrong kind of people to the state. We don't want them here because it doesn't help at all. It hurts the situation. I'll give you a specific example. So again, last year, fall colors, the road up to the ski basin from Santa Fe is called Hyde Park. Normally you can drive. I ride my bike up there many times a year, uh, early morning. There's hardly any traffic, etc. cetera. So this is fall colors. I've just come back into town from a blurb trip and I'm like, I'm going to drive up to Aspen Vista and go for a run, which is about 9,000 feet. And I'm probably three miles down Hyde Park Road. I come around the corner, and there's an Instagrammer in her straw hat in the middle of the road with a small table, and she has a line of products, and her little lackey Instagrammer uh, boyfriend or, or assistant is taking pictures of her, and she's posing with a product and then putting it down and picking up another one and then putting it down and picking up another. It is a chain reaction of commercialism through Instagram. And she's blocking the road. And now there's traffic is starting to back up. And I make it another three, four, five miles. And there are so many Instagrammers in the middle of the road. So I get out and I'm talking to people and I'm talking to these Instagrammers. None of them are from here. They've all come in because this, when they looked on the map, was the closest place that would give them the fall colors that they were looking for. They were primarily from LA and San Francisco. They knew nothing about New Mexico. New Mexico. They, th- most of them didn't know there were mountains here until they started looking for fall colors, right? And that was fall colors was the hot thing at that time of year for Instagram. So of course you have to conform and get out and do what everybody else is doing. So they don't know anything about New Mexico. They don't learn anything about New Mexico when they're here. All they do is take, right? And so the, now the 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 argument to this is, well, there are an influx of capital into the markets when they come in here, but that's not true. They're here for 24 hours, a day and a half, and then they move on because and several of the people I spoke to said, oh, I can't wait to get out of here. And I heard one talking to the other one and talking about how there was nothing in New Mexico worthwhile. So these people who are going out and trying to make change through using social platforms, to me, that is a short-sighted, almost meaningless way of going after change in society. Because again, Instagram will go away. There'll be something new. TikTok will go away. There'll be something new. So if you've put your eggs into these Instagram or baskets, and you're like, oh, we're going to work with these influencers, and they're going to like bring attention to New Mexico, they won't. They'll, it'll, it might bring attention for a day, and they're going to move on. Most of the, the quote-unquote influencer programs that I've been involved in with, in, with um, Instagram influencers have been epic disasters, a total waste of time, and a total waste of money. Because 99% of the time, they're not skilled at anything except for building following, and they are not loyal. So the second they're done with you, they'll move on to a competitor and do a campaign with them. And in some cases, they're even difficult to work with in the middle of doing the campaign that you're doing. So I think social media, and I think Instagram in particular, are worthless when it comes to basically bettering the community that you're in. And so I need to know from you guys. And my buddy earlier gave me some really good data points in terms of what he's seen where in the country that he lives and how they've gone out and found advocates in the community that represent each sector. Uh, and each advocate for each sector cannot only advocate and promote their silo. You have to advocate and promote other people's silos, other industries. It has to cross over. You also have to have a high-level think tank group sort of, sort of strategy with people on the ground. And now to me, there's two things, two major things that jump to my mind in terms of the foundation of what you have to create before any of this takes place. And the number one thing is hope. We have to bring hope to people, especially in the smaller communities. Whereas if you're a high school kid and you grow up in a town of 500 people, and you go to a local school, and it may be a good school, it may not be a good school, and your parents are there, and your friends are there, and you're kind of like, look, this is my lot in life. I've been dealt a hand. i got a pair of fours here, right? I don't have a full house. I don't have a flush. I have a pair of fours. And thankfully, there's a lot of tenacious people out there that sort of claw their way out of these locations, and they, and they go on to bigger, better, brighter things, and oftentimes go back into those communities and really help things but but there has to be a sense of hope. You have to get up in the morning and think that potentially tomorrow is going to be better. That's the that's the thing that we have to do first. That in itself is is staggeringly complicated. Like I don't I still don't know how to do that. That's why I'm asking you guys. So I think humor too because a lot of what we're talking about is heavy subject matter, heavy topics, but there has to be an element of humor otherwise people get turned off. So if there's a way to build hope with a little bit of humor and connect all of these different industries together, the politicians are not doing this, right? Our political system has failed us from local level to state to federal, and it's not working. We have some of these like law enforcement are incredibly siloed off. And if you look at the history of law enforcement in a place like Albuquerque, man, I have not quite seen anything like that in terms of sort of the, some of the, the darker side of law enforcement that's happened down there. So if you have any ideas, any help if you've done this, if you know someone who has, if you're working on it in your country or community now, um, how do you think the virus is going to affect this? Is it going to eliminate barriers? Is it going to add barriers? I don't know. I'm asking for your help. So if you can write me a comment because uh, I need the help, and this is something that I'm going to be working on, hopefully for the foreseeable future. Okay. Last point. Story. This one's kind of nasty. I'll be. I'll be perfectly honest. That is why I label these. These are not labeled for children, okay? This is where we're going to cross over from the G rating because this is a really funny story. Okay, so back in the day, I am working for Kodak in California, and I'm down in San Diego at a photo lab. And uh, I'm sitting behind the counter with the guys who own the lab, and this older gentleman walks in, bald, bald relatively short, but I took one look at him from across the room and I said, he's ex-military. That was just my first thought. Not good or bad, just he's ex-military, I can guarantee it. So he comes over and he drops off an enormous bag of transparency film. And someone behind the counter makes a crack about skin tone. And I was like, oh, I think I know what this guy does. So right prior to going down there, we were in the middle, the US was in the middle of a uh, United Postal Service strike, a UPS strike. And one of the industries that was affected most at the time was the adult entertainment industry because they were syndicating all of their films through the mail, and, the UPS was, and UPS was not delivering, and so they were not being able to deliver their films. And during the part of that story that was on NPR, they talked about the fastest-growing segment of pornography was amateur porn. And I was like, wow, that's weird. Now, remember, this is like the, the Internet is still fledgling at this time. So internet porn was not something that everyone goes, oh, yeah, I've seen it, whatever. There's every conceivable kind of porn you can possibly imagine. This was, I was like, what? Amateur porn? What is that? I was like, is amateur porn mean just untrained professional actors? Or does this mean your neighbor's making a film? And it turns out that it was your neighbor's making a film. And I was like, oh, I'm totally intrigued. So I'm at this photo lab. This old guy walks in, drops off the bag of film. Somebody makes a comment about skin tone. And I was like, oh, he's in porn. He's in porn. I go, hey, what do you do? And he's like, um, nothing, nothing. And I go, yeah, yeah, I think I know what you do. No, no, it's nothing, it's nothing. And I gave him this story. I said, look, I just heard this story on on NPR about the UPS strike and adult entertainment being hit, blah, blah, I gave him the whole rundown. I said, I go, what do you do? And he goes, I make adult films. It turns out he was like the oldest male porn star in the US. He's a former military person, retired, um, got divorced, got into like swinging and then became a porn star. One of the most... One of the nicest people I've ever worked with on any project in my entire life, and it's not even close. So professional, so nice, caring, would call me to see if I got home all right, et cetera. So I pitched him. I said, look, I don't know anything about that industry. All I hear are horror stories, you know, drug addiction and girls that don't want to do it who are being like sex slaves and all that stuff. So I said, I really want to follow you around. And he's like, well, German TV was just here. You know, a lot of people have done pieces on me. And I said, look, here's my work, right? I had a printed portfolio with me. I said, look, I'm a black and white reportage photographer. And he looked at it and he was like, look, no one's really done anything like this on me. Everything has been motion. Everything's been color for TV or film companies or whatever. No one's ever done an essay like this. So he agreed. And I spent the next about four months following him around from Los Angeles to San Diego to sets to his house. Et and it was mind-blowing. I learned so much about the industry, about people. I was on sets with Ron Jeremy, um, who's an amazing uh, pianist, by the way. Let me use that word carefully and pronounce it again for you very slowly. Pianist. Quite the piano player, that boy. Uh, really good. And so, so I'm photographing this guy, Dave. And I'm slowly building a body of work. I'm shooting Leicas, TMZ, and we're going out at night and doing what they call stealing scenes, which is filming in public areas without people knowing. We're filming on sets, both high-level and low-level. And also, we got invited to something else, which is the point of this last story. So we got in, Dave got invited. I shouldn't say we. I was not participating, although at one point there was a problem on the set with lighting, And I said, oh, I can fix that. They're HMI lights, and there was something wrong, and I fixed it. And then one of the directors or DPs or whoever said to one of the female stars, well, he did fix the lights, so we kind of owe him. And this woman was on her way over to Uncle Dano before I called off the the dogs and said, "Uh, no, 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 that's okay. It's all fine, all good, all in a day's work. I'm just an observer, not a participant. So anyway, we get invited to something called the Houston 500. Houston being a female adult film actress who i had never met. And the Houston 500 meant, in essence, and I'm trying to keep this clean and uh, and upbeat. Uh, Houston meant the 500 was a take on NASCAR. It was a takeoff, a ripoff of NASCAR, like the Pocono 250 or whatever. But this was called the Houston 500. Her name is Houston. And 500 meant the number of people that she would be with in a row, right? You get my, you get my drift here? One day, airplane hangar, Van Nuys. Very strange, right? So I'm like, holy cow, is this really going to happen? And am I really going to be in there? So yes, I'm going to be in there and I'm going to be photographing and I'm going to photograph this Houston 500 thing. And so I'm in this building like shell shocked about what's happening around me, right? So this thing is cranking up, and the line of participants who are naked, by the way, which you kind of have to be to do what they're about to do. And there's 500 people, naked people in line waiting for their turn. And then Houston is doing her thing. I was able to talk to her behind backstage before it started. She was very, very nice and fun and upbeat and happy. And I, I liked her. I thought she was a really um, solid, solid person. I'm, I don't really know her. It was literally a five-minute conversation. But I was like, wow, this is really great. She had a, a you know, strategy and everything. So we're waiting, and the director, the guy who's doing this film, is he's got the area cordoned off, and then there's a cordon, like a, a waist high piece of rope, that's you know around the area where the action will take place, and we're we're all we've all been pushed back to this area. Now I'm shooting with a Leica, so I got a 35 and a 50, which is useless from the, all the way back there, so I already know I'm going to get in trouble to get the pictures that I need. So the director literally stops the production comes over to me stands in front of me and goes I know what you guys are thinking meaning the photographers you cannot go under this rope you go under this rope I'm throwing you out of here and security's like lining this whole area so these guys are all watching and I'm like no problem no problem so he walks away and I'm thinking okay I'm going to get thrown out I just have to make sure that the timing is perfect I'm going to get one shot at this with Dave with Houston and then I'm going to and I'm going to run in there and get the photos and then they're going to they're going to jump on me security and they're going to throw me out So as I'm sitting there visualizing this in my head, I notice someone to my left leans over. It's a woman who's a journalist, and she looks at me and asks, what number are you? Meaning, what number in the row of 500 are you? And I looked at her, and it turns out she was from like Detour or Details, one of those magazines. And I was like, I'm not a number. I'm a photographer. I'm a journalist. I'm not participating in the Houston 500. And as I'm answering her, a photographer on the other side of her leans around her looking at me, trying to hear what my answer is. And he's wearing a ski mask. He's literally wearing a ski mask and he's shooting at the same time. And I go, what are you doing? And he goes, look, man, you know, I got a career. I don't want to be known as the guy that covered this. And there's cameras all over. So, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, what are the odds that I would ever end up on camera in this film? Foreshadowing. Little foreshadowing. That's called foreshadowing, people. If you don't know foreshadowing, look up foreshadowing because that's foreshadowing. So I do this. Dave gets up with Houston. I jump under the ropes. I run in. I get like three frames. You can see security running at me. They grab me, toss me on the ground, drag me out. You're thrown out. But I got the picture, right? I got what I needed, which I I don't like doing that, but... I'd spent way too much time to not get at least something there. So I get thrown out and I forget about the Houston 500. And then about six months later, apparently the film comes out. And this is, again, it's not online. It comes out like VHS. So, and it also comes out apparently in hotels that offer uh, adult films in the room because I get a phone call one day and it's a professional photographer who shoots NFL travels all over shooting nfl games and he lives in la and i know him we hang out at the same photo lab i've seen him at the dealer we buy film from the same place and he's calling me he's never called me before and he says uh i'm like now five minutes into the call i'm like this is weird he's not saying anything really and doesn't really seem to have a point of view and i'm like uh is there any reason in particular that you called and there's this long pause and he goes well he said uh So I was on, I'm on the road a lot, you know, and I'm away from my wife and kids and I'm in hotel rooms. And, and, you know, last week I was like, well, here I am in Vegas or wherever, not Vegas, San Francisco, maybe. And I'm in my hotel room and it's late and I haven't seen my wife in a long time. And I'm like, well, I'll see what's on, uh, I'll see what's on TV. So he calls up the, uh, he does the old, uh, punching in, you know, buy on the TV. He buys the Houston 500, which, you know, as we all know is a is a world-class choice. And he goes, he goes, yeah, you know, I got this film called the Houston 500 and, uh, five minutes in, he goes, there's my Kodak rep. Now at the time I worked full time for Kodak and did projects on the side. And so he goes, there was my Kodak rep. And I go, what? And he goes, you were at the Houston 500. You're in the beginning of the film. And I was like, uh, he was like, Hey, Hey, don't sweat it. It's not a big deal. You know, I uh, I just thought it was funny. And so there I was in the Houston 500. Now, I have not seen the Houston 500. Maybe he's lying. I don't know. I don't think he is. But um, that to me was the ultimate irony and uh, one of the best stories I've ever done. I had so much fun working on that project. Um, I did not see the terrible underbelly of the industry. I'm sure it's there. I was fascinated. And I tried to photograph this in a way that it could run in a European magazine, number one, because they have much less um, censorship there. But I also shot a version that could run in an American magazine. And uh, it never ran anywhere because even the two, two instances where it was ready to go to print, they backed out, they chickened out at the last minute. Um, I thought it was a wonderful story because you had, did have a guy who had military service And had changed his life and was in this industry. You know, porn at the time was just starting to land online in a major way. I had breakfast once with um, this guy and an African-American star. I can't remember his name. Um, He's super famous. And we had breakfast, and these two high school kids were at the opposite end of the table. And they did not talk to us the whole time. They were working for this African-American guy. And he said, they're million-a-month guys. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, they're making a million dollars a month online with pornography. And I was like, uh, what? What's online? Is this a fad? Is this like a CB radio? Yeah, it was that, that point in time. So yeah, what I'm saying is I missed the boat. But anyway, I got these pictures. Great story. That's my story from photography for the week. I hope that was interesting and, and you're not completely uh, offended and never come back here. But the number one primary point of this week is that idea, I need help about trying to figure out ways post virus to improve my community. And again, it's not through social, we need longer form thinkers, we need people from industry, at high levels, low levels, and we need the community to buy in. And I honestly do not know how to do this. All I know is what I don't want to do, which is kind of look at some of the methodology that's being applied now. I don't think it works. I don't think it works in the long run in particular. So if you have any suggestions, any help, I appreciate it. And I will be back next week with another star-studded episode.